Welcome to the Be Disciples podcast with your hosts, Kyle Morris and Dakota Smith. This is episode number 19 with special guest, Dr. Gary Habermas. Please join us in discipleship through conversation. God, it is a joy and a pleasure and an honor to be able to conduct this show for your glory. I uh, thank you, God, that uh, regardless of where we are at in our walk, uh, that, Lord, it all comes down to what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, that we stand on a firm foundation. Thank you that you've given us an intimacy with you in Christ, of which we pray we'd never recover from. God, thank you that our relationship with you is firm because you've risen from the dead. It's impossible to have a relationship with someone who remains dead. But thank you that you're alive, you're alive forevermore, and that we can know you. I pray for our listeners in this show that, God, they would learn what they believe at the core. Thank you for Dr. Habermas. Thank you for him being on the show uh, with us tonight. We just pray that his teaching would be edifying for our listeners. And I pray for my students at the college. I pray for those in uh, my gospels class at Ottawa University. Lord, would you do a work in their heart as they continue to learn about the evidence behind the Christian faith? We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here we have our guest on the show, Dr. Habermas. How you doing, brother? I am doing well. Looking forward to a really good discussion. <laughs> Absolutely. We've we've had some technical difficulties starting out tonight, haven't we? We have. A little, a little <laughs> disappointed. I've never seen this happen before anywhere, so. Yeah, Zoom went... Zoom went rogue on us, so we had to call you and get you in. <laughs> no. They've always well, been good in the past, I'll say that. Hopefully we'll find a good solution to whatever's going on. Yep, yep. Well, Kyle, why don't you, why don't you start it off, brother, uh, our typical question for Be Disciples podcast. Let's get it rolling. Yeah, so our first question we, we ask everybody is to just share with, with us and our listeners your uh, discipleship journey from, you know, when you first, uh, you know, gave your life uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and kind of who's, who's been those people along the way to really guide you and teach you. And, you know, you could go as early as you want to up to most recent, but just kind of that discipleship journey of, of who's really, you know, speak into your life and, and has really gotten you to where you are today and, and helped out in that way. So I'm going to leave it to you to kind of do that. I'll tell you what, I'll say a few things and you guys can redirect it or say, well, why don't you go in this direction or that direction? But sure. Um, I uh, I live in Virginia today because I teach at uh, Liberty University, but I'm from Detroit um, originally and uh, born and raised there and pastored there and also pastored on the west side of the state. Michigan, but I came to the Lord. Um, I'm one of those guys. I'm pretty close on the date. I'm pretty close on the year. I believe I was. Um, I was either eight or nine years old, but I remember where I was. It was a. I I attended a German Baptist church, and I was in vacation Bible school. I remember the person who led me to the Lord because later, this is an odd story. Later, both her family and our family moved to a different location, and we ended up in the same home church, a different German Baptist church, and she was the one who led me to the Lord. Now, as far as discipleship, um, I was never discipled one-on-one by anybody, and that's probably because 
of my age, I mean, you know, being led to the Lord so long ago, it was probably like, you know, dark ages. And and the first people I remember doing discipleship was uh, Campus Crusade and people like that. And their books started coming out maybe in, I'm just guessing, 1970 or so. So we didn't even really know too much about discipleship. But I think how I got discipled, the way I answered that is this German Baptist church that I grew up in um, with the woman and her family who led me to the Lord. And by the way, her sons became very good friends of ours. But I think it was sort of a group discipleship thing because we had a very large youth group and a very rigorous Bible study and training uh, facility. And we had one fellow in particular who's a well-known author today, but he was in our church and he led our group a lot, uh, very often. And uh, so I grew up together and I think we were kind of group discipled. Um, that might be an odd concept, but because but, uh, we all met together, we met so often, Wednesday nights, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and we just went through different uh, studies. I mean, I remember spending the summer uh, studying Second Samuel or something once. So we went off another data, but that was basically it. I think we were all together, and, and we grew we grew strength from each other. And to this day, many of us still keep contact. Those who were led to Christ during those days, and uh, that's why I'd say it happened. I would say group discipleship. But uh, for me, it was in that vacation Bible school in a summer. Yeah. You know, it's so encouraging to hear because, to be honest, uh, there are a number of people who don't realize it. But if they were to just begin with a Bible study to find a group of friends who'd be willing to read the Bible with them, they would grow tremendously in their walk. I mean, I'm speaking to my students right now. You're only going to grow in your walk if you find those people who are just as serious about their walk as you are. So, you know, Dr. Gary, you're Dr. Habermas, you are are, to me. You're an authority, academically speaking, um, a top authority on the resurrection, um, someone well-known within the apologetics community, apologetics world. So take us through that transition as well. I mean, how did you go from studying with Campus Crusade for, uh, of Christ and, and doing those Bible studies, and, and then how did you become you know, a professor? How did, academically speaking, how did you get to where you are today, to where you're... you're speaking with authority on the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, there, what was the transition there like? Well, it's strange because I have been doing more and more writing in this field because people are asking me for it. But I I was sitting here when the thing wasn't going through uh, tonight. Uh, I went right back to a document I was working on. And I've got a, I've got a um, big, I've got a book coming out pretty soon. And they've asked me to do a, a forward and they wanted me to start with my autobiography. Yeah. So I started writing it. They asked me how I got into the resurrection. How I got into apologetics. Well, from that time I just described to you, where I came to the Lord at a young age. Um, after that time, I had a couple really, really difficult events occur to me, and about the same time as I became a Christian, the closest person in my life died. And uh, it was my great-grandmother, and she was, I mean, I was super close to my parents, were from a large German close family, but she was the closest person in my life, and uh, she died. And it was a real struggle for me. And then a few years later, and I connected to her death, 
um, and the uneasiness that I experienced there. But a few years later, I started going through some horrible doubts mm. and doubts about my faith. And I, I doubted seriously. I mean, pretty serious doubts for about 10 straight years. Wow. And then I took a break and then I went back. I had doubts on and off sporadically for 10 more years. So that's 20 years. And at the end of that time, just when I got a handle on it, by God's grace, I haven't, I've never had any issues with that. And that was decades ago, but um, a little bit after getting over it, uh, I was married and my wife and mother of my four children had what everybody thought was the flu and it kept not going away. And they finally sent us in for tests and she was diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer. Wow. And she died a, sh a short four years later. I, sorry, wow. sorry, sorry. Four months later, she died. Yeah. And, and I thought to myself, great. I, have, I haven't had any doubts for years, but they're probably going to come back because of this, you know, the first event, my great-grandmother dies. Last event, my wife dies. And by God's grace, I still never doubted again. Never, It never came back. Wow. But it was a great shock for me because I told my closest friends the worst possible thing that could ever happen to me has come upon me. That's how I viewed my wife's death. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of framed everything. The people in my that same German Baptist church I told you about, they gathered with me and said, well, if you're having doubts about your faith, try this evidence and try that evidence and try this. And I, I studied everything. I mean, they suggested archaeology. They, accepted, they, they suggested creation. They suggested what we would today call intelligent design. Um, they said, look at prophecy. Look at world events. God's doing things in the world. Look at the New Testament's reliable. And I thought there were a lot of good points there, but I thought none of them were really super. And so I kept doubting. And one day I happened onto a reference in a book, it was only a few paragraphs long. And the fellow said, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then how else would he have been raised unless God did it? Because dead men can't raise themselves. And so his father must have done it just like he said. Nobody else in history has had this happen to him. Nobody else in history even claims it. So what he said must be true or God wouldn't have done it. And that day I read that and I thought, that's a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> I got I to study this thing. And anyway, I was off and running. I, so that, that resurrection promised to be the answer to my doubt, but it didn't end easily. I was on that for years and years and years. I had, I, in those days, we took notes on cards, three by five cards. <laughs> and I had... I had 16 or 1,700 three by five cards with resurrection material. Wow. And, um, yeah. And I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on the subject of Michigan State. But that still mm -hmm. wasn't the end of my doubts. So a long, long haul. But after giving my life to the Lord, I had a, this incredible journey bookended by the two closest people in my life dying. Yeah. And, uh, but the resurrection is true and it happened and it's solid and 
that's where I am. Well, I mean, your, your testimony is powerful by the way. And just the, I think at least just for myself, I, I can look at uh, people, you know, who, who, who are like you, who aren't academics, who's been studying something for so long, who's written books and, and who's, who's looked up upon uh, by all the work that you've done and, and people study your work. And, and then there's all kinds of people um, like you who, who do that as well, who are, who are, you know, uh, followed by many people and, and sometimes think, man, these, these men of, of, uh, never doubt, you know, they, yeah, they have right. men of great faith and, and they're, <laughs> and they don't have any issues and look at them writing all these books and doing all this studying. And, and the reality is you've, you know, you've shown us or told us that you, I doubt too. And I've had many, many years of doubt. And, and I think that can resonate with so many people, so many people where they, they, they doubt at times. You know, that's true, guys. You know, I, I know virtually all, virtually all the best-known apologists in the world. I mean, you name them, and we've all been together because of these big events where there's, you know, the seminaries that have 20 speakers in at once, and they're all over the country, and I've been to them and everyone else. And I, we don't sit around and say, did you doubt, did you doubt, did you doubt, did you doubt? But just the guys yeah. I, I know real well, I know their testimonies. Almost everybody has gone through it. Yeah, I mean, Mike Lacona, who's very well known in New Testament, um, and did he and I did a book together on the resurrection. Of course, he did what I think is the best book out there right now on the resurrection. Yeah. Um, I know Mike super super well, and super well, and um, Mike went through doubts for a long time, and like me, because this happened to me, he and I both different times in our lives, different ages. We both almost walked away from, I would say by God's grace, God's grace kept me from walking away. It was, it was God's, to, to me, it was Holy Spirit. I didn't realize that till later, but I yeah. thought I was gone. I thought I was yeah. gone from the faith. I was an adult. I had a PhD. So I'm not talking about some kid here. Yeah. Mike also, Mike also PhD. And going, so, so it's extremely common. I can go down the list with you. Yeah. And almost all the big name guys have gone through these things. In fact, I can only say, you know, it's like the old, not a joke, but the old story that guys who go into counseling do it because they have issues. Uh, guys <laughs> who go into apologetics, go into apologetics because they have issues. Yeah. And what started out as a, sorry, I don't care about you. I want to solve my doubts becomes a, okay, now I'm straightened out. Let me help you with yours. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how it goes. Yeah. You know, if I can speak to that just for a minute. First of all, I want to say something to you, Dr. Habermas. Is, I mean, I, Kyle, I think you'd say you'd feel the same way, but I feel extremely honored that we're not here just interviewing you about your information and, you know, all the research you've done around the resurrection. And we will get to that. But on the other hand, I'm super honored and blessed to be a part of your story and to know that you're getting ready to write about this. And here you are and you're allowing us in on your your life and your story. That's amazing to us and I, I feel honored by it but but then too I, I love your transparency about doubt because what I have found in my Christian faith over the years is number one whenever I have doubts whenever I'm wrestling it's like God is infusing in me a greater ownership of what I actually do believe uh, mm -hmm. there, re there reaches this point where how can your faith be personal if you yourself don't wrestle with it? And I mean, I'm thinking about a student that I have in, in class right now who 
Uh, he's not a believer, not a Christian. And yet I, I love that he's wrestling with who Jesus is. I love that he's wrestling with, you know, being confronted with Jesus and the resurrection, things of that nature. So it's good to be transparent. And it is so refreshing to hear that from someone uh, like yourself that we all look up to. Well, guys, thanks for saying that. I don't, um, I don't look at myself that way. I don't, I don't take myself seriously. I'll, I'll tell you real funny. Uh, one, I have, I've had teaching assistants for, I don't know, 25 years. The school's, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of publishing. So the school makes a researcher um, available to me. A lot of the professors have them, but I do more publishing. So I don't know. I, um, they, I've had some really good guys over the years. And one day, this one guy, he was doing his third master's degree at Liberty. He now he now has a European PhD and is a faculty member here. But but he walked. He came over to my house one day and he was getting his third master's degree. He walked in my front door. I knew him for a long time. My wife, who's very soft spoken and doesn't doesn't talk loud to anybody, he walked in the front door and he said, he said, uh, Doctor Hermes you don't know what an honor this is for, for me to be chosen to be your TA. A lot of guys were sitting out there wishing they would be chosen and you chose me. And I'm so humbled. I just can't believe this. I can't even believe I'm in your house. I can't even believe you're talking to me. And my <laughs> wife walked up to him from the kitchen. And again, she's never done this to anybody. We've been married for 24 years. I, I remarried after my, my wife died, by the way. And, um, and she walked up to him and his name is Sean. And she said, Sean, get a grip. <laughs> it was so funny because he's doing this. I don't know how I could be here and all this. And now he and I are colleagues of the faculty. <laughs> so like what you guys are saying is really true. I mean, the guy who has the doubt ends up being the pastor who ends up talking to 10 people at one time about doubts or that in my yeah. case, this guy, in my current TA, he just finished his PhD about two weeks mm. ago. Wow. So, I mean, the Lord keeps multiplying and, this guy loves the Lord. He loves evangelism. He's talking to a guy for me right now in evangelism because this guy called and said, can, can you talk to me? I'm having issues. And I turned him over to my TA yeah. and uh, he's, t t you know, dealing with the guy right now. And we've seen a lot of seekers call and ask those kind of questions and myself and him and others. And by God's grace, I mean, these people come to the Lord. It's not a, it's not something we do. Yeah. I tell my Amen. students, quit saying I led three people to Christ. You don't lead anybody yeah. to Christ. That's right. Leading people to Christ, it's a supernatural thing, and you don't have the yeah. power to do it. I don't care yeah, how smart a, you are, you don't have the power to do it. The grace of God is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. And these uh, kind of stories where it's like, you know, one plus one is two, and then, the you know, multiplied. They, it's your discipleship principle. One of, you, one of them starts discipling over here, and the other one starts over there, and there's a group of people— and, uh, you know, word gets around. Amen. Well, hey, no, that's a, oh, go ahead, Kyle. No, that's a, I just think it was, that's a great example of discipleship, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. having TAs and then passing those TAs off to other people and then getting guys connected when they have questions and, you know, making sure that uh, these questions are talked about and that's discipleship. Yeah. I mean, that's multiplying disciples and, and doing those sort of things. So yeah. it's just cool to see that, you know, on a, on a, on a college level or even a PhD level, you guys are still just, Hey, no, this discipleship, we need to talk about this. We need to have these conversations because we doubt at times yeah. we get in these ruts and we need to continue pushing forward and, and continue talking. We can't, we just, because I have a PhD in something doesn't mean discipleship goes out the window. Yeah. 
discipleship is just as important to everybody, uh, just, you know, the same as everybody needs Jesus. So yeah. that exactly same principle right. of discipleship is for everyone. And, and, uh, that's, it's so great to hear that, uh, oh, happening right. at Liberty that's University. True. Yeah. So Dr. Habermas, with that being said, let's jump into the thick of it. Um, I feel like I, I, I mean, I'm so honored with the discussion on this personal level, but now let's let's minister together to our listeners. So absolutely, let's get into it. What I would first just ask is, well, Kyle and I were talking about this right before you you logged on. Is can you talk about the death of Jesus, the evidence <clears throat> for there being an actual death of Jesus Christ, and then what is also the positive evidence for his resurrection as well? We'll just let you teach, and we'll jump in where we can. Okay. Uh, death of Jesus. Well, first of all, you need distinctly less evidence for death than you do for a resurrection. Um, <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, everybody dies. So I, I think about yep. very well-known skeptics. Here's three of them. Uh, John Dominic Crossan, Marcus Borg, and Bart Ehrman. Yeah. Uh, now, Borg died just a very few years ago, but but they may have been, you know, throw, you know, one or two other guys in there. And these guys may be the most influential skeptics in North America over the last 10 years. And, mm-hmm. and uh, now each of them on the death of Jesus, <clears throat> Borg and Crossan have almost identical comments. And their comment goes something like this. They say, I take it absolutely for granted that Jesus died by crucifixion. And I'm pretty sure one of them says it's the surest event in the ancient world. Amen. Now, Absolutely. That's, that's Crossan and Borg. Now, you yeah. go to Bart Ehrman, and Bart Ehrman has a chapter in one of his books on the two best evidences for Jesus being a historical figure. And one of the two involves the fact that, according to Ehrman now, the way he counts, the way he figures— mm-hmm. Yep. He produces 15 sources for the death of Jesus within 100 years of his, of his death. So, in other words, from 30-ish A.D. to 130-ish A.D., Ehrman, who variously, t- depends on which kind of subject he's doing, he variously calls himself an agnostic or an atheist. Yep. Um, he produces a list of 15 uh, sources for the crucifixion. And a number of them, I mean, I'm going to guess something like a half dozen of them are not even in the New Testament. Right. So there's the three guys, two of them saying it's the most, you know, it's as well established as an event in history. Third one saying, I'll give you 15 sources for it in the ancient world. And it should never be questioned. Yeah. So there's three. But I mean, I could go a lot further than that. The, 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 the arguments I just did were three guys, all of whom are skeptics and all of whom are using historical-type arguments. The, the listener should not mistakenly think, I'm arguing that because these three skeptics think it's true, therefore it's true. That's not my point. My point is these three skeptics think it's true because each one of them knows evidence for it. And because they know evidence for it, you're, you're seeing the end of the race. You're seeing them cross the finish line. When they say, when they say, it's the best established uh, fact in the ancient world. Yeah. But 
be with them during the whole race while they're putting the case together, while Bart Ehrman's looking up these 15 sources and looking up every one of these sources individually. And, uh, you know, and he says 100 years because in ancient history, 100 years later is is that's early, early, early. I mean, I'll give you two quick examples. Um, Alexander the Great is an historical figure, of course, that would rival, you know, Julius Caesar and other major figures. And our earliest major source for Alexander, I don't mean an inscription in a, you know, in a uh, somewhere, a one liner, but I mean, our earliest detailed uh, report on Alexander was written. Now, now there are many of them written earlier. We just don't have them. So the earliest one we have is just short of 300 years after his birth. Wow. But that's but it's not the best one. <laughs> the two best ones, Arian and Plutarch, are 425 to 450 years later, almost a half a millennium. And we're sitting here with Bart Ehrman's list of 100 sources from only 100 years for Jesus. And they go, well, all right, that's a secular example. But how about the Buddhist guy? How about, the, how about Buddha? How about the religious guys that Jesus is compete, competing with? Competing with? Okay, well, I have a book here on my shelf by a Buddhist. The guy's a PhD. He's a Buddhist. And he says, I'm going to present for you the best sources for Buddhism. And here's how he starts his book. He says, to my Christian readers, basically, I want you to know, I'm not trying to compete with you. We don't have the data you all have. We don't have your data. He said, you have the words of your Lord. We don't have the words of our Lord. You have the words of those who studied under your Lord and those who studied under those who studied. We, we don't have that stuff. In fact, <laughs> earth-shakingly, he says, virtually every source I'm going to tell you in this book for Buddha dates from 600 to 800 years after his death, twice mm-hmm. the distance almost of the earliest Alexander source. Mm-hmm. And then he went on and said, we can't even tell you what Buddha taught because our sources, we don't have them early enough. So there's a comparison. So these three guys give you the testimony, the resurrection, the crucifixion is so strong. I'll just say real briefly on the crucifixion. Um, I am writing an, a medical article right now for a medical journal on what scholars say about how Jesus died. Mm-hmm. And the majority view, I've been tracking this for decades, the majority view by far is that death by crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. Yeah. The, the, the centurion did not have to have a medical degree from Johns Hopkins University. All <laughs> he's got to do is know how to nail you onto wood. It doesn't have to be a cross. Yeah. It could be planks on a wall. It could be a tree. And people were crucified that way in the ancient world. And all he had to do was put you up there because the theory is you're going to die by asphyxiation. Okay. And, and then one last one on the cross. Um, what's called David Strauss's critique was made in 1864 by a very famous German skeptic who died not believing in the personal God and not even believing in afterlife. So he was very, very skeptical. And he's today, his reason to strengthen for the crucifixion is still the most cited reason for believing the crucifixion today. And that is uh, Strauss is the famous guy who said, the problem with death by crucifixion is even if Jesus were taken down and he was, and he were alive, the problem is you don't get a, a swoon theory and a Jesus who's raised, you get the opposite. 
you get a Jesus who was so badly hurt that even if he didn't die by crucifixion, he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, he's bleeding again, he couldn't walk to where the disciples are. He's had not had food or water for at least two days. Um, and so when he walks to where the disciples are, they wouldn't say, oh, good, God raised him from the dead. They would say, God spared him, but it's up to us to, up, up to, us to save him because this guy's in a lot of trouble. In other words, you don't get a resurrection out. So for all those reasons, the historical reasons, the death by asphyxiation, Davis Strauss's critique, I think the crucifixion is so strong. It's it, That's why it's not challenged by virtually anybody today. You're referring to a minute ago with the swoon theory. Is That's one of the popular beliefs that Jesus didn't really you know, resurrect from the dead, but of course, uh, you know, he's somehow survived and continued on. Um, you know, the disciples had some sort of deceit and influence upon it. But the problem with that, as you said, is so what confidence do they now have to continue on with the message of the gospel proclaiming oh, sure. him risen from the dead? So I'm sure you'll get into that in a minute, but go ahead, brother, with the resurrection. I mean, what are the greatest positive pieces of evidence that we have as Christians? Our faith rests on this one event. So what can we so, take confidence in? So it better be in? good, right? It better be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it all f- stands well, and falls okay, here. Okay. Okay, well, I, when I was going through my doubts, I won't draw this point out, but when I was going through my doubts and wondering if Christianity could be accepted or rejected or what basis would I have and so on, I started playing around with an argument that today is called the minimal facts argument for God's existence. I'm sorry, for the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And what I was doing was, when I would pull up arguments for the Gospels and stuff, my real skeptical friends would say, you can't use that one, you can't use that one. No eyewitnesses wrote the four Gospels. <laughs> and so I kept studying it to find out what's the strong evidence, strongest evidence. And these skeptics, atheists, like a Bart Ehrman, they would all concede seven major epistles of Paul. They'll let you use them all the time. So I started making this minimal list of, okay, if I have to answer, if I have to defend the resurrection, I can't use every source I want to, not with you, because you won't let me use them. But the ones you will let me use, it's enough to make my case. So that's what I started. So I did my doctoral dissertation in uh, way back in 1976, and I I, uh, argued for the resurrection at State University. And I did the minimal facts right at the end. I didn't use it through the whole thing, but I used it right at the end. I gave a minimal facts argument. And then ever since then, 1976, I've been developing the minimal facts argument. What it says is this. I will use only those facts which are, A, uh, evidenced by many other backups, and then, B, because there's many evidences for these facts, Virtually every single, we're talking 90-something percent of skeptics, skeptical scholars now, not just everybody who, you know, calls himself a skeptic. They don't have any degrees, and they've never thought this through, and they're just going off on Christians. I'm not I'm not making right. fun of them. I'm just saying I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about right. guys with PhDs, terminal degrees. And they're going to they're gonna allow all the facts I want. I only want six of them. And they will allow all six of them. Why? This is an argument from authority? No, it's not. The authorities agree because the data are true. So you start with true data for six facts, so much so that everybody's on board. Bart Ehrman would admit them. Crossan would admit them. Borg would admit them. And 
And I'm going to argue that those six facts alone are sufficient to say that Jesus is raised from the dead. Not that there are six alone. You're choosing the ones that everyone would agree upon along oh, with Oh, yeah, them. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if you let if you let a, um, a Richard Bauckham or uh, uh, Craig Blomberg or Daryl Bach or some of the best-known New Testament scholars in the world, they might yeah. give you a list of 25 things. Yeah. But then the Bart Ehrmans are going to come along, and they won't let you use this one, this Side one, this swiping. one, this one. Then the other skeptic will say, well, I'll give you those three, but I won't let you use this one, this one, this one. What happens when you have a list that everybody accepts? Well. I ended up with six, and I think that's the I think the resurrection can stand based on that list alone. I can give you the six if you want. I can do them real fast. Let's do them. What's the Go six? Go for it. Okay, here's the six. Number one, we already did it. Jesus died by crucifixion. Now that's not an argument for resurrection, but you have to have him dead before you can have him raised. So <clears throat> he died by crucifixion. Secondly, everybody concedes this, and that is that the disciples had real experiences that they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. Everyone allows it. Bart Ehrman says, of course I'm going to grant you that. It's a, it's a fact of history. Just flat out, yep, I'm going to give it to you. The New Testament doesn't exist if they didn't believe that. Well, that's true. And, yeah. and the proclamation, nothing would. By the yeah. way, on the New Testament, a lot, of pe- a lot of these guys who don't have degrees, and they won't let you use the New Testament because they think it's prejudiced, Bart Ehrman has a great <laughs> response to that. He says, guys, I am not a Christian, but I use the New Testament. How dare I do that according to you? Let me tell you why. And here's his illustration. He said, if you're going to do a report on the American Revolutionary War, what are you going to do? Not interview any American generals or guys who fought in the war because then we'd be prejudiced because we're using the people who were involved? No. If you're doing a report on World War II, you want to talk to the big names. You want to talk about to to you know General MacArthur and Eisenhower, and you know want to talk to these people. Um, so you, of course you're going to use them. But Bargerman says the the verses I use they're not true because the New Testament says so. That's baloney. He says it's true because I know where to walk. I know where the strongest facts are, and I'm only going to use the facts from the New Testament that are backed up. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. So number two, disciples had these experiences. Number three, this is the one that's most is most changed in the last 20 years. The resurrection and deity, I can add, I, I, I de- define the factual side of the gospel as the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus were all reported. Now we think, okay, let me think about this. Don't tell me, don't tell me. Mark, 40 years later, no. Okay, okay, okay. You're going to say, Paul, starting 20 years later with First Thessalonians. That's good. That's good. That's a nice move. It's half the distance of Mark. But no, I'm not doing that. What are you using? All these skeptics. I can give chapter and verse. I can do it till the cows come home. I can give you the, the strongest skeptics in the world who are going to grant what I'm going to say next. Bart Ehrman says that the earliest reports of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus were reported within one to two years after the cross. So now if you think back to our earlier report, you got Buddha at six to 800 years, Alexander at 300 with the best sources at four and a quarter to 450. Mark being quite good in the ancient world at plus 40. Bart yep. Bart Ehrman's gonna let you go 100 years, but <laughs> Mark at plus 40. Paul, better, First Thessalonians and so on, beginning at plus 20. Yep. 
but you got sources from plus one to two? Yeah. Well, yeah, Bart Ehrman says that. Gert Ludemann, the famous German New Testament atheist scholar, says that. Uh, James D.G. Dunn, who unfortunately just died, and, and he, he, he and Tom Wright are probably the two most influential New Testament guys in the world today. Uh, Jimmy Dunn, that's what he went by. Jimmy Dunn said that we, we probably have that First Corinthians 15 creed, very yeah. possibly from the same year Jesus was crucified. Absolutely. We call the, and the evidence, we call that early, early, early. Yeah, very early. And so that's my third point. We have these reports from very early. And fourthly, the disciples turned the world upside down. And I don't say they died for their faith, because you can't prove they all died for their faith. But the disciples turned the world upside down, being willing to die for their faith. And they, they were willing to die specifically for the resurrection. You go, well, how do you know that? Well, it's real simple. If the resurrection is the center of the gospel, and there's no gospel without the resurrection, you have to have the resurrection to have a gospel. They were preaching the gospel. Therefore, they believed the resurrection. Yep. Therefore, when they were willing to die, they were willing to die for the resurrection right. appearances. Now, somebody might say, well, you're, you're, you're trying to read their mind. We can't psychoanalyze people who lived 20,000 years ago. I mean, 2,000 years ago. How do we know they're willing to die? And I'd say, I'm not psychoanalyzing them. I'm not reading their minds. I'm watching where their feet go. And when you go back into a town, let's say, that you've been in once, and you got beaten up and left for dead, but you walk into it again a year from now, you're pretty serious about going back there, and you're pretty serious <laughs> about your faith. I call that willing to die. And Absolutely. then let me just add, though, mm -hmm. that the four biggest named Christians in the early church, by far, 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 the most influential, Paul, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, by far the four most influential, we have first century reports of the martyrdoms of three of them, and a second century report for the martyrdom of John. Now, that's not that's, that that second century one isn't a solid, but the first three, Peter, Paul, and uh, James, the brother of Jesus, we have first century sources for their martyrdom. So in those cases, we can say they suffer martyrdom. Bart Ehrman would admit it in a heartbeat. All these guys. So that's four, and then real easily five and six. Two skeptics, Paul, uh, James first, later Paul, becomes they become believers. Both skeptics of different flavors. They become skeptics. Uh, they change from skeptics to believers because they had appearances. They thought they had appearances. They had real experiences that they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. I'd use those six. And I'd, I'd, I would take the empty tomb for fun. It doesn't meet all my criteria, but there's over 20 evidences that the tomb was empty. So I don't call that a minimal fact. I don't call the empty tomb a minimal fact, but I would, I would throw it in there. If they say, no, you can't use it, great. I don't need it. Since there's over 20 evidences for it, that would be my seventh one if I had to pick one. So you use those, and here's what these seven can do. You can refute every major natural theory and give all the major evidences for the resurrection and use only those six or seven. So yeah, that would amen. be my best for the crucifixion. That'd be my best for the resurrection. Now, if it's true, and only because it's true, what you guys are about, now we can go out and disciple because we have yep. a basis for discipling. Absolutely. We're not, I said it earlier in the show, we're not believing that Jesus is still dead. 
you know, we actually physically believe that he rose from the dead. And because Absolutely. he's alive, we can know him, we can be saved, redeemed by him. I mean, the number of things I could I could say from the basis and foundation of the, the resurrection is numerous. Kyle, do you have any, any thoughts for us, just as you're listening in as well? Yeah, I was thinking about the student in your classroom, Dakota, or the students um, that I work with. Yeah. And or or any skeptics, I know you. We have a lot of these skeptics who are highly educated that you're talking about, yep. and they they hear these facts. A lot of them believe these facts to be true, mm-hmm. but there's still that point where they say, "I'm not going to believe it." Right. At I'm the not heart. going to. I'm not going to follow. And and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't want to surrender yeah. their lives and call Jesus their Lord and Savior, yeah. they want to continue what they think and what they want to do. I don't I don't know if there's some connection there. They've got the facts, but yeah. there just isn't that surrendering, that giving up over their life to Jesus now. Yeah. Um I don't I don't know if that resonates with some of the conversations you have with with these with these guys who are who are still skeptics even though they believe the facts or they're with you on a lot of the facts. So I don't know if you could share a little bit about sure kind of what holds them up if they believe in some of these facts. Yeah. yeah and, the, and the way it's, it's asked to me when I'm on a university campus or when I'm, I'm somewhere else, um, they'll say, uh, they admit all this. Yep. They don't have any questions. Not that I know of. Um, they tell you they believe these things. Yep. Then why aren't they all on their way to heaven? Why aren't they all? <laughs> and I'll say, I'll say, let me, let me give you guys a, let, let me answer with a parable. Um, let's say the guy asking me the question at the university, let's say you and I are best friends and I'm married. I'm happily married. And, and that's a true comment. I, I'm so convinced that marriage is a great state that when I meet somebody, I always look at their hand to see if they have a ring on. And if they don't, I think, and you know, you don't have to wear a ring, but I think to myself, golly, there's a, not a happy guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Amen, so brother. Say, <laughs> we love our wives. <laughs> so, I, so I say to this guy who's my best friend, I'll say, um, I've got somebody. Would you trust me to go out with this person? Would you try it? And I go, well, I hate blind dates, but I'll do it because I know you. Okay. I'll do it because I know you. Okay, good. And you go, well, let me just tell you something. This person's the greatest person you'll ever meet, blah, 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 blah. They do it. In fact, they go out two or three times. They come back. I go, what do you think? And they say, this person is the most incredible person I've ever met. And I said, isn't that true? Isn't that true? So you believe me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm your best man. I'm your best friend. Can I be your best man? Yeah. And my friend says to me, look, dude. This is the coolest person I've ever been with. I assure you, we're going to be good friends and stay good friends. And we may get married someday. Mm. But here's the point. You can win the argument. Yeah. But I am not ready to get married. And we have a hundred reasons for it, right? I don't want to be tied down. Mm. The next thing we're going to ask is, are there going to be kids? And I can't take all that. And let me get my life settled with a job. And let me get a better job. If I'm, you know, and we got all these objections. And the person says, if I were going to do it, it's this person. But I can't do it right now. 
Well, I think that's what's true. I just had a guy write me an email just days ago. He and I are still talking. Um, and he, he was really very, very brilliant and very much into his doubts. And he said, what can you tell me about the faith? And, and so I give him these reasons. And we got all the way down to the punchline. And the guy literally said to me, and then he wrote it to me in an email, so I have it in print. He says it in print. You win. Your argument's good. I can't refute it. But I do not want to give up my current lifestyle. And so I'm not ready to come to Christ. He said that at the end of the day, after this painstaking, and I said to him, because I don't really know him that well, and I said, I wish you told me that at the beginning. I wouldn't have tried so hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And, and, and when the guy said, no, 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 no. He says, this is good. Let me think about it. Now he's contacted me again. And he said, I think I'm willing to change. He said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to study your arguments again. I'm going to call you back and give you my decision. Now, he hasn't called me back yet because we're not there. We're not to that time. We're not past the time yet, but that's how he came back. And at the end of hearing all these facts, he goes, the facts are good to go, but I don't want to leave what I'm doing. And that's my answer to that kind of person. Yeah, no, certainly I've, I've been on mission trips or just sharing the gospel to whoever. And that's usually the most common response that I get. Uh, A lot of them, you know, they either grew up in church or they've heard about Jesus and they, mm-hmm. they know who Jesus is. And they just say, I don't, I don't want to change what I'm doing. I don't, yep. I'm good. I, I, I like my life and there's really nothing that needs to change. Why follow Jesus when I like what's going on? And, yeah. and, uh, you know, and that's where, you know, you start thinking about, you know, Jesus is the one who changes hearts. God changes hearts. I don't, uh, yep. again, I don't yep. save people. Yep. And it's a good reminder of that. And, yep. and we continue to pray for those people and, uh, and we hope God changes their heart and they'll, they'll see the, the power of Jesus Christ and the death and the resurrection and, and live for it someday. And so, no, that's, it's certainly so true. And it is one of the most common responses that I get. And, you know, yeah. one thing that I would, I would like to share just along with Dr. Habermas's illustration. First of all, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to borrow that. I'll tell everybody that I got it from you, but I'm going to use that marriage illustration. Definitely. One thing that I say to my students not just this semester, but over the years has been, and you know it, if Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? It really comes down to that is, okay, let me, let me give you the arguments. Let me give you the evidence. But at the end of the day, you have to determine if this is true, would I surrender to Christ? And number two, you also have to ask how much evidence is enough? Because if you're not careful, you can just simply say, well, I need more. I need more. I need more. And at the end of the day, you don't, you don't realize the reason you're not coming to Jesus is because the real issue is in your heart and only he can yep. change your heart. And it happens. It <laughs> happens. Yeah. So, yep. well, so brother, if we can do this, you know, the next part of the discussion is really what are the popular theories, the negative theories of Jesus not resurrecting. But before we get there, do you have any other miscellaneous things? I know you gave us the baseline six, but if there were, any others you had to give evidence for the resurrection? You could well, touch there, on that. There's a lot of other evidences, but the ones I gave are the best attested ones. Yeah. They're the ones that, that skeptics don't just blow them off like, yeah, I don't believe what you believe. Yeah, they don't go there. 
And, and you know what? Going right into the naturalistic theories, let, let me tell you, let me just continue that comment I just made that they'll accept all your facts. I was just talking to Mike Lacona um, the other day, and then I was talking to my TA who, like I said, he's got a my teaching assistant. He's got a PhD, and he did his master's thesis and his PhD, both in the resurrection. You're going to be hearing from him. His name's Ben Shaw. And he's already got 20 publications. So he's, he's publishing like crazy. He's really sharp. He's only 34. And, um, and we try things on each other, Mike and, and he and I. And the crazy thing, by the way, I don't know if you guys are how much you're into sports, but Mike and Ben are both in the mixed martial arts. And um, Mike is a second degree black belt in Taekwondo. And Ben, my teaching assistant, is an instructor in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And and so the three of us, it's really apropos to say that because the three of us, we kind of try things out on each other and try to, in a sense, put each other in locks and try to let you get out of them, you know, like that. Yeah. And and so I was talking to these guys. I was talking the other day. And I said, hey, guys, um, I said it to Mike and to Ben separately. I said, guys, think about something with me. Almost nobody is picking naturalistic theories today. Yeah. The guys who do. Now, again, I'm not talking about the guys who think Jesus never lived and, um, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, they don't have any degrees and they say they're scholars and none of the scholars take them as scholars. Like Bart Urban wrote a whole book against that kind of mindset. But I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about guys with credentials who are well-trained in the area and they can be the most blatant unbelievers you can think of. And when you think about who do you know who is really fervent about taking one naturalistic theory and sticking with it, they're almost all old guys. In other words, they've been doing it through their whole life. The young guys coming up, they know where the data are. It's almost a past art, if it's an art. They don't pick naturalistic theories. So when you think who are the best guys you can think of, well, Gert, Gert Ludeman takes one. Barterman used to. He doesn't anymore. Um, Dom Crossan says he doesn't take one. Uh, I don't think uh, uh, Marcus Bork took one before he died. Um, there's only a few guys who take theories who are who are well-known scholars. So today, here's what it comes down to. The guys on the street are the guys you're going to have to deal with because they're the ones that pick the theories, the ones that don't know any better, and they just pick whatever they want. The guys who know better, they generally don't pick the theories. Now, what does that tell you? Yeah, Bargerman says, when I was an evangelical, I wanted the guy to take a naturalistic theory because I felt sure that I could blow him out of the water. And so I wanted to pick a theory. Well, since the minimal facts arguments come along, uh, 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 this argument I uh, defined earlier, by the way, one of the critics of the minimal facts theory, they don't like the minimal facts theory. And yet they've said in print that the minimal facts theory is easily the almost unanimous way people argue for the resurrection today. So it's out there a lot. Now, here's why I've said that comment. If the skeptics know the minimal facts arguments, and they know they've got to allow these facts to look like an idiot if they go against these different facts, <laughs> and they know they've got to concede the facts, they don't want to pick a theory because they're going to be back in the corner real fast, just like Ehrman said with his old buddies when he was an uh, evangelical. 
and they don't pick theories. So today, the most popular response is, ah, uh, the supernatural doesn't happen. That kind of stuff just doesn't happen. I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to pick a theory. Supernatural is so dumb, I don't even have to pick one. Anything smarter than what you believe. And that's kind of where they go. And, you, and what, they're, what they're admitting is they don't want to pick a theory because they don't have anywhere to go. Yeah, none of them work. <laughs> <laughs> they don't work. Yeah. So, you're, so you, every, every Christian should get to know the reputations, yeah. but know who you're going to be using them with. Yep. The field is narrowed on who's going to bring these things up. Yeah. If I if I could summarize everything you just said in a few short words, it comes down to this. People are no longer standing behind the naturalistic arguments against the resurrection because the evidence that we have for the resurrection blows those arguments out of the water every single time, which is why you don't see young scholars holding to them. And the only thing that they can hold to is the arguments on the street or just the simple denial of the facts itself because they don't hold to supernaturalism so that's really good news for us as christians the reason why people can't debate against the resurrection is because all of their arguments are flawed and our information stands up under the test of argumentation under the test of time under the under the test of uh, the history of skepticism Um, you know it's amazing what we have in the resurrection and, and that's well. That's well said. Now a lot of them are going to hear this, what you just said and what I just said. Yep. They're going to be ticked because yeah. <laughs> you're saying it sort of quote unquote in their face. Yeah, but deal with it. And they're not. Gonna, they're not going to like that. Yep. So they're going to go. Well, I'm not like that. Good. I'll pick one. <laughs> um, they're they're going to get upset. <laughs> they they may get upset and they might do that. Yep. And, and besides, we need to know them anyway because, like I said, the guys in the street. I'll tell you guys a real quick, real quick story. I was speaking at Stanford one time. Actually, I was there twice, but one of the times I was there, um, I gave this um, what I call the resurrection timeline, and it's my minimal facts argument. And I gave it across the front of the room, and I walk it off on a on a timeline. And and I said to them, I don't have time to do the naturalistic theories, but the facts I'm giving you tonight will refute them. So, okay, let's open up for Q&A. And I told the guys I would stay there. Um, we, we had an hour for Q&A. And then I said I would stay there until the janitor kicks us out of the room. So I will stay here for two or three more hours of your questions. All right, we went to the questions. And I'm thinking, what in the world are Stanford guys going to come up with? I mean, they've <laughs> got to come up with the absolute best objections in the yeah. world, right? And so this guy, he was very polite. And he come, he came to the microphone. And he said, would you be offended if I just picked a naturalistic theory and, and uh, see what you say? I said, hey, be my guest. Love to have you do it. Yeah. Fine. All right, here's Stanford. So I think, what is Stanford going to say? And here's what came out of his mouth. Why couldn't the disciples have stolen the body? <laughs> well, I'll tell you guys, <laughs> almost nobody. I'm the guy that does the head count. And I know history of resurrection stuff yeah. coming, you know, coming and going. Yeah. You can argue, there's some guys that have played around with it. You could argue that nobody has held that theory since a guy named Herman Samuel Reimarus about 1765 in Germany. Mm. No one's held this theory for about 250 years. There's a reason nobody held this theory <laughs> for 250 years. Yep. And here's a guy at Stanford goes, why can't we do it? Well, I always tell my, my students, when you give reputations, number your reputations, because they may never remember all your reasons, but they'll probably remember the number you got to. 
And so I said, okay, yes, I'll be glad to do that. And I said, I said, let me just put parameters up or let me make it really tough for myself. I'm going to continue this lecture by not using any facts that are not already in my lecture. I won't go outside the mark and go, well, uh, Peter was the source for Mark and Mark wrote the second gospel. So now I got an eyewitness and Mark says, no, if I didn't use it in my lecture, I, w I won't go to those arguments. The guy goes, okay, fair. I can use these, these minimal facts. He goes, yeah, you can use the minimal facts. So I started numbering them. And I went, one, you can't say that because of this. Two, you can't say it because of this. Three, you got a problem here. Four, you got this. Okay, I got up to seven. And I said, my seventh reputation is, now I don't know if you guys have noticed this before, but sometimes a ripple goes through a crowd and you can almost for sure know what the ripple means, but nobody said a word. And mm -hmm. when, the, when I got the number seven, I gave him seven. And then I said, number eight. <laughs> I never gave eight because this ripple went through the crowd. And the ripple, the guy heard, the guy came to the same conclusion I did, what the ripple meant. And I took the ripple to mean, sit down, dude, you've been crushed. <laughs> okay, that's how I took the ripple. Here's how the guy responded to the ripple. He goes, okay, okay, I'm sorry. And he backed up from the microphone and kind of trotted back to his chair and sat down. <laughs> but what I mean is he'll probably never remember later the seven critiques I gave and the eighth one I was ready to. He'll just remember seven, and the crowd kind of laughed me down nicely. And it was kind of a, probably kind of a devastating thing to him. And he makes a mental note, don't bring up theories with these guys. Yeah. But that's just, that's just an example of what happened here at Stanford, and the guy sat down, and I've had that happen before, but he was done. Yeah. And, and, you know, the most popular theory probably from those who take it is hallucinations. And I published – you can find this on my website. It's online because the journal I did it for has open, open uh, reading for the Christian Research Journal. I published an article years ago, 19 Refutations of Various Forms of Hallucination, 19. And then I published a technical one that's on my site with a medical doctor, he and I, and we did one for the Irish Theological Quarterly on three psychiatric comebacks on the resurrection, and hallucination was one of them. And my co-author, a medical doctor, my co-author had checked the PubMed material going back, I think, 25 years and there is not one documented case of a group hallucination anywhere in the medical literature. And so when we say, yeah, when we say uh, uh, the, the most, the strongest uh, evidence, uh, ev evidence, the strongest evidence for the crucifixion, the strongest single appearance that the 12 disciples saw him at once, so, you know, 12 minus one, 11, um, saw him. And there are probably some women, there are probably some others, there's probably 20 there, but but that's the strongest evidence uh, is that that many saw him and that's a group. And there's not one example in the medical literature going back 25 years. So on my website, GaryHabermas.com, there's, there's the 19 artic, uh, argument refutation of hallucinations from Christian Research Journal. There's the one I did with this guy for the Irish Theological, I think it's called ITQ, Irish Theological Quarterly. And we did these three psychiatric theories. Um, it's all there. That that's the that's the disciples of the bodies, the worst of them. 
hallucination is probably the most common one. So we've done the first and the last. Yeah, what what you're essentially saying is that some would say, well, the disciples just hallucinated that he rose again. But the fact is, people never have group hallucinations together, nor do those hallucinations become doubt, doubted. Um, you know, in other words, they first doubted that Jesus had actually rose again. If we look at the scriptures, what does it say? I mean, it says that they doubted multiple times. And so you don't doubt and then have group hallucinations. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, in fact, even a, a worse problem is, let's just say that my my medical doctor co-author, by the way, I've done this also with a, with a, with another friend who's a clinical psychologist who works in the hospital and psychiatric ward. He did the psychiatric literature, the psychological literature for 25 years and also said there's not one single case of group hallucination. So that covers that covers medical type psychology and medicine. Yeah. And not one case. Now, if the guy goes, okay, so there's not one case in the literature. Let's just say there's one or two cases out there. Yep. And I'll go, okay, well, you're asking me to believe something for which there's no data, right? So I just want you to know you're hanging that in space without any evidence. What you won't let me do for the resurrection, you want to do for your theory. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you do it. Let's just say there could have been a, a group hallucination or two. Here's your problem. You go, well, then I got you because you gave you have this appearance of 12. I go, yeah, but how many group hallucinations were there with the disciples? How many group relations were you need? How many group, that's like saying how many group appearances were there? And there's about a half dozen pretty decent ones. So now here's your thesis. All right, just let's just say that there were two group hallucinations in theory. How does that make you feel? I go, well, I have six group resurrection appearances. Are you going to tell me I have three times as many appearances as you have group hallucinations? But the only time mine happened is to Jesus, and you don't have any facts or anybody? Right. You know, you one group hallucination won't do it for you. Right. You've got to come up with like six, and you don't have any. Yep, it just doesn't and happen. And that's just that one alone. I, I tell my graduate students, is, is, the, is the hallucination theory an empty tomb theory or a or a closed tomb theory. And they'll say, it's a closed tomb theory. The body's still in the tomb. And I'll go, eh, <laughs> body's not in the tomb. Now what do you do? Yeah. Well, they got to come up with another theory. See, and that's just the kind of stuff they're up against. Yeah. yeah. And that's why guys don't do this anymore. If I, if I understand it correctly, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I think Bart doesn't use hallucination anymore. Yeah, because it doesn't work. You know, yeah, I don't know why I can't get into his mind and find out why he's not doing it. But <laughs> I tried to email him once. He did say in one of his latest. And what did he say? Oh, I tried to email him once, and he just didn't respond to me. I I tried to bring some of these things up uh-huh. to him, but I mean, I mean, I I'm not. Yeah, because he knows you're witnessing to yeah. him because he's been there and done I that. I tried. <laughs> why not? <laughs> in my zeal, I yeah. Tried. Well, I got a friend. I got a friend. I got a friend who's a believer, and he writes to. He writes to Bart all the time, and Bart answers almost everything he writes. And he's got like, I don't know, 20 emails from Bart answering his questions. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, keep it up. You, you, you may hear from him. Well, Dr. Habermas, you know, one thing that you've done is, is spoke very intelligently for us about the six baseline reasons why the resurrection is a real deal, why Jesus rose from the dead, and why we as Christians actually believe that he's physically alive, that he sits at the right hand of power, mm-hmm. um, proving supernaturalism, right. proving the, the the point of the scriptures, uh, the redemption of all mankind. I mean, again, if Jesus rose from the dead, 
then it settles everything and he demands a response from every person. We know that the arguments, uh, the naturalistic arguments don't work. They haven't been working for years for a reason because the facts and the evidence are on our side. But if you were to close up this interview, this has been such a joyful time. We, we've got to have you back. If you were to close this up, theologically speaking, for the Christian today, so we were speaking to skeptics, we were speaking in theory to non-believers, but coming back to the Christians who are listening, what does the resurrection mean for us theologically? I mean, what does that have any anchor on? Not just my walk today, but what does that mean futuristically, eschatologically speaking? In the end, how, why does this matter? Well, uh yeah, I've I've got um, a little a little. There's two a companion set of books. I need to get them online because they're out of print. But I did two little books. One on what theology is true because of the resurrection, and the second one is what practice is true because of the resurrection. And of all the things in the New Testament that are said to follow because of the resurrection, if the resurrection is true, this is true, and so on. If there's just one thing like like that in the New Testament, uh, we are told almost 20 times, just short of 20 times, we're told that the number one thing that's true is that believers will be raised because Jesus was raised. We're told that 20 times. Paul said, um, he will take my vile body and make it like his glorious body. John says, we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. Um, over and over, when Jesus, uh, before he even died on the cross, he told the disciples, because I live, you shall live also. Um, so I, I would say the most the direct argument is, if Jesus was raised, believers have a reason to be committed to Jesus, because that's what he requires. The word believe, uh, we should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. A lot of people, I, I actually had a friend of mine who was an unbeliever, he was very well-known psychologist, and he said, you Christians are too easy because Buddhism has stronger salvation requirements than you do, and all you require is them to believe, like George Washington. You know, yeah, I believe George Washington, President of the United States, you say belief. And I try to tell them the word believe in the New Testament is a very strong word in the Greek, pistuo, pistis, yep. the Greek words for belief. They mean Commit. They mean to, well, both John and Peter use the phrase, walk in his steps. And I, I, I like to use the phrase, when we say yes to Jesus, it's like, to me, the closest equivalent to the Greek word for believe are the, are the English words, I do. We all know when we get married, the vows are pretty much the same. And we say, for better or worse, rich and poor, and sickness and health, till death do we part. Now, Christians don't say till death that we part. That's just when it gets good. But but um, we say we give everything to each other, and we make a total commitment to that person. Jesus wants us heart, soul, and spirit. And I think that's saying I do to him is, is what he wants. And I think that's the clearest thing. For those who have made that commitment— and we know that Jesus has been raised, then we could be sure we're going to be raised from the dead. So I would say those are the two most sure things. The, the, uh, because, I, uh, because I live, you shall live also.
But the other one on salvation, I think the best verse probably is that says because of the resurrection is Romans 10, 9. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him, that we'll be saved. So I'd say those are the two key things, that it, it grounds the salvation process and the I do part, and it ensures eternal life on the other end. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Habermas, for, for joining us this evening and taking the time and staying up late and, and having conversation with us. Um, it, it's been a, a joy uh, to do this, very encouraging. So I would, I would just like to pray for you uh, as, we, as we end and as you continue your work. And uh, again, appreciate what you've done. So I'm going to pray. Please do. Dear Lord, just uh, thank you so much for tonight. Uh, just uh, bless this conversation. Uh, even through some some technical difficulties, you've uh, allowed this conversation to continue, and and just how how great it's been. And I just want to pray for Dr. Gary Habermas. And uh, first, I thank you for the work that you've done in his life and the testimony that he has, um, really to be able to connect with many people who have experienced loss and doubt, um, and who has wrestled with their faith and and uh, with their relationship with you, Lord. And so. I thank you so much for that personal testimony, and I just pray for him as he continues his work and continues to write uh, and continues to have conversations with those who uh, do not believe and, and continues to press forward. I just pray for him and keep him strong in his faith and that he continues to push forward and run this race till, till the end, uh, fully knowing that it's not the end, that we get to spend eternity with you, Lord. In your glory and worship you for eternity. And so thank you so much for tonight and this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, fellas.